I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people, it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, what's good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. They call me Ben. We are joined with our super producer, Paul, Mission Control Deck, and most importantly, you are you. You are here. And that makes this stuff they don't want you to know. No, we... Several of us have been to the UK, right? Correct. Right? Have we all been? I have when I was very, very little, but I don't really recall it uh, intimately. Okay. And Paul, thumbs up, thumbs down. Have you been to London? He has not. Okay, Paul, we will go on an adventure soon, assuming we can get into the country after today's episode, which is kind of a question that we have to confront often. I had a... Uh, I think we'll be fine yeah. as we, what we will find out a little bit later. 
Yes. About the uh, differences in MIs. Hopefully, yes. Hopefully we will be fine. You know, if the Epstein episode didn't uh, <laughs> didn't finish us, hopefully this, this one will be fine. So we have a lot of listeners in the United Kingdom. A lot of your fellow listeners, as you are checking out the show today, are located um, – Often in the Anglo sphere, where people speak English, right? But but there are listeners around the world. We just got an email from a guy in Uganda, actually, yeah. which is very interesting. Uh, he was slapped not, our wrist. Was not a fan of the above majestic uh, interview. Uh, by the way, you can check out our Facebook page. Uh, here's where it gets crazy to see our response to this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But. This this is a episode that will center on the United Kingdom. If you are thinking to yourself, Matt, Noel, Ben, Mission Control, why should I care about this? Why does it matter to me? I don't want to go to uh, foggy London town. It's, this is irrelevant. Well, let's just say before you get into your point, remember all the connections we've made between intelligence agencies mm-hmm. across the world, especially those that speak English? Right, right. So this matters to you. If you can understand the language in which we are uh, conducting this podcast, then this matters very much, more so than you might assume. Like most countries, the United Kingdom has its own variety of intelligence services. And most people outside of the UK, we're, we're familiar with their intelligence operations through one very important portrayal in fiction. James Bond. Yes. Right. Yes, perfect. Agent 007 himself. I mean, I I can't even – I should have looked this up before we hopped in the booth here, but I don't even remember how many James Bond films exist. I'm going to have a shot in the dark and say 12. That sounds like the title for a James Bond film. A Shot in the Dark. <laughs> <That'd be good. laughs> but, but that's it's, not right. It's more, than, it's more than 20. 12. 15. Paul says 35. Paul 25. says 19. Paul says yeah, 25. He said, he said 25. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's amazing. And it also shows like of course – we would be most familiar with intelligence agencies through this James Bond thing. Uh, there's also an interesting study you can find uh, if you just Google it about James Bond's drinking habit. Somebody went through all the books and they counted every time he had a drink. And we're like, well, this guy is clearly wasted the entire time and he probably has a cirrhotic liver. Have you ever had a Vesper martini? That's James Bond's martini of choice. Yeah, there's a there's there are a couple great Vesper places here in town now. Really, really good. Yeah. It's like got a lemon twist and it uses Lillet instead of vermouth, I believe, which mm-hmm. is like a kind of dry white wine aperitif kind of thing. It's very citrusy, very refreshing. I have no idea most of the words that you just said. Aperitif? White wine, Lillet is the brand. It's, yeah, it's, 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 it's good. It's good. We uh, we also have a huge advocate for vespers uh, in the form of our pal Josh Clark. He's a he's a vesper guy now. Nice. I don't know why I said it like that. Changes his that shakes his yeah. moral character to the core. I see a lot of people riding around on the vespers uh, in, uh, in Atlanta. Oh, that, that's cute, man. All oof. right, I like you're, it. You're welcome. <laughs> Big oof, but. Uh, Today we are taking a look uh, behind the curtain, past the the sexy James Bond portrayals, right? Today we're looking at the real-life inspiration for countless spy thrillers aiming to answer a disturbing question. Let's just get it out of the way now. Is MI5 a criminal organization? Ooh, that's 
that's heavy. It's a good way to frame this discussion. It I really say that. Yeah, it absolutely it is. is. Oh, get some clicks, right? Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a big question. Sure. And we're going to drill down into it, as they say in corporate speak. Mm, let's start drilling. Let's get granular. So what, what is MI5? Well, MI is the most important thing you need to know here, and that's military intelligence. I thought it was Mission Impossible. I, I wish that it was. I thought it was Martian intuition. In, in this case, it is military intelligence. Right. Specifically, that number afterwards is the section number, so section five. And it's founded in 1909, and it wasn't called this at all times. It started out as just something that was called the Secret Service Bureau. Because what better way to keep a secret than have the word secret in the title? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I mean, in that, that Secret Service in 1909, you can see it harken back then to the United States in uh-huh. our own secret service. And it uh, will, what we'll find is that they do very different things. And that's why you kind of have sections for all these different secret services that you have. In this case, MI5 is directed by the Joint Intelligence Committee or JIC. And this service itself is bound by this thing that was created in 1989 called the Security Service Act. Of 1989. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, that's the name, right? Uh, the what we mean when we say bound is that the Security Service Act essentially, or I should say ostensibly, mm. lays the groundwork for what MI5 is supposed to do, uh, how it does it. What, what it, it can do, basically. Right, 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 right. And what does it do? The service is supposed to, well, it's directed to, we should say, protect British parliamentary democracy and Britain's economic interests and a counterterrorism and espionage within the UK. So counterintelligence. MI5 was founded by Captain Vernon Kell. It's a very distinguished sounding name. Uh, the, the organization played a central role in the capture of most of Imperial Germany's intelligence agents in the UK at the beginning of World War I. It's a big deal. Um, MI5 is not the same thing. It's important to note as MI6. MI5 is the British Security Service, while MI6 is the British Foreign Intelligence Service. So, Ben, how, how should we how should we think about this? Yeah, think of it as being similar in a way for our American listeners uh, to the relationship between the FBI and the CIA. Just always kind of flummoxed me a little bit, if I'm being honest. I think it always flummoxed the FBI and CIA themselves because they certainly overstep into one another's in, territory. They encroach. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and oft, I mean, when the CIA is dealing drugs and the FBI has to deal with it, things get messy. Uh-oh. Whatever, it's true. Ultimately, it's dealing with inward-facing and outward-facing counterintelligence and intelligence, right? Perfect. Yeah, that's the perfect way to say it. Uh, essentially, MI6 is tasked to send British spies abroad, and MI5 is there to catch spies from other countries. So that, there you go. That makes sense, right? Crystal. And – there are multiple military intelligence services. I really like that you hit on this, Noel, because we <laughs> a, a lot of people have kind of this Heinz 57 problem when we talk about MI5 and MI6. You know, were, were you ever a kid looking at Heinz 57 and wondering where the hell are the other 56? Yeah, I want to try some of those at least. Ketchups. It doesn't have to do with how many spices are in it or something? I don't know. I assumed it was like – Baskin Robbins, where they've got the flavors, and they always exceeded that flavor yeah. number. Right? We should we should probably ask Lauren Vogelbaum or Annie Reese. There's a plug for Savor, the food <laughs> science show, and lifestyle. But yeah, so it turns out uh, it was an historical advertising slogan. 
about uh, the 57 different varieties of, of pickles. Soup? Oh, pickles. Okay. <laughs> How do you have 57 different – I guess you can pickle anything, right? Yeah. So, so in the case of these multiple military intelligence services in the UK, we find that they go all the way up to MI-19 and many have come and gone since the creation of the first military intelligence service, MI-1, which was created sometime during World War I and they mainly focused on cryptography, code breaking, counterintelligence stuff. You know what I mean? So they were figuring out what? Imperial Germany was up to. And as we mentioned, they were quite successful with some of this stuff. And over time, various sections folded or they merged or they changed their area of focus. And these sections, MI1 through 19, ran uh, ran all sorts of different, I don't want to say hustles, but different processes. Their activities included stuff like specialized geographical analysis. You know, we have a desk that just looks at Russia, for instance, or one that just looks at South America. And then they would have things like map making, aerial photography. They would also have things that we would normally find objectionable in Western governments today, such as three different active propaganda and censorship bureaus. Yeah. And they were they were blatant about it. That's what it said on their label. But, you know, a lot of that stuff spawned out of World War II when the propaganda had to be strong on all fronts. Right. Uh, and including with that was MI-19 that you already mentioned, and that was the bureau specifically or the, I guess, section specifically designed to interrogate prisoners of war during World War II, which is kind of scary. That's It's like the black site section. And it's also – it's interesting because – the organization feels a little bit different in comparison to intelligence agencies in the U.S. Like the CIA handles a ton of this stuff with its own different subsections. You know what I mean? So what does MI5 do? We've we've looked at just the, the broad – I don't know, the broad strokes of this. Uh, but when we ask what it actually does on the ground – we run this is one of those million dollar or million pound questions officially MI5 does what it says on the website right yeah it catches spies that's what it does it intercepts communications it finds people it conducts classified counterintelligence i mean come on that that's MI5 for you and um what it does <laughs> is it keeps the bear from the door. That, the it says that whatever, on the website. Whatever, whatever scary animal that you'd like yeah, to. The yeah, the coyotes can't get in because of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, the, I like that Cold War reference, right? Because the UK had to reorganize a lot of their stuff and, and evolve their sophistication when the KGB came out uh, guns blazing in the Cold War. Right? Oh, This yeah. is interesting though because to this day, many of these operations and my five operations remain classified. Yeah. It's kind of a big deal. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, I mean, a lot, it seems like in our country, some of that stuff kind of eventually over time when it ceases to be important for security, we get to get a little glimpse into, you know, some of the past covert operations, right? A little yeah. bit. Some of them, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely correct. One thing that's One thing that's tough for the British public is that without information about a lot of these operations, many of which were fairly recent in the 1980s and stuff, uh, without that information, it's tough to gauge how successful or unsuccessful this organization is. Because if they're doing everything right, you never hear about them. 
You know, you That's only it. hear about them when something goes uh, pear-shaped, which I believe is British slang. <laughs> or something goes really right and another person leaks information. Right. And that's how we do know of some intelligence failures. For instance, in 1983, one of MI5's officers, a guy named Michael Bettany, was caught trying to sell information to the KGB. And he got caught. He got convicted of espionage. So the big question is, what did he – did he successfully sell stuff? some stuff beforehand. Yeah. Know? Did he get away with it before he got caught? Ooh. And was he the only guy selling information? I certainly doubt it. Yeah, probably not. And, you know, with these organizations, you have to continually justify your, the reason that you're getting so much uh, money from the public, I guess, tax dollars and all of that mm-hmm. with any intelligence uh, community or organization. And as the Cold War came to an end, they switched gears again because there were terrorist threats coming from Northern Ireland, uh, states such as Libya where uh, Colonel uh, Gaddafi was operating and that was a threat, at least at the time a perceived threat. These were some of the major threats, at least according to the MI5 for a little while there. And then, you know, at, like we said, the Cold War is coming to an end. Now we're in the 90s and there were some major reforms put into place. And the service actually around this time gained its first female director general. Yeah, Dame Stella Remington, who held the position from 1992 to 1996. And then the rise of Islamist terrorism at the end of the 90s, culminating in the 9-11 attacks in 2001, led to massive changes in the way MI5 operated. Yeah, absolutely. And look, folks, it's no secret that counterintelligence is a murky, murky business. Operations often edge into morally and legally gray areas. Over the course of its existence, like many other intelligence agencies, MI5 has conducted numerous secret operations, often without any public oversight and often even without governmental oversight. The left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. And many people would say that is the way it should be. Sure, sure. Sometimes even people who don't work for MI5, mostly people who work for MI5 probably say that. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I see the point about compartmentalized information, right? There's, there's a need to have that sort of operational security. But critics don't buy this. Critics allege that MI5 is much more than a counterintelligence agency. In fact, they argue while MI5 functions as a spy service, it also effectively functions as a criminal empire. Whoa. Yeah, like Hydra level. (laughs) What the hell are we talking about? We'll tell you after a word from our sponsor. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. 
how this beguiling woman in her 50s she looked like a million bucks with zero qualifications she had a harvard plaque tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents she's got all of these maseratis and bentleys all in the driveway is it like a mansion yes it's a mansion that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes about six million approximately 11 million dollars nearly 10 million dollars was all gone employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor. Gene, was we'll it. Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle. And I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's where it gets crazy. While the MI5 might not be a criminal organization, at least to its parent government, uh, ye old, uh, let's just call it what do we call it? The parliamentary United Kingdom and their government and, you know, perhaps the, the queen and all of her subjects. Um, but it certainly functions as a criminal organization, at least at times. Uh, you know, and we're not – again, we're not just throwing, throwing ninja stars. Is, is that okay to say? We're not just throwing ninja stars at, at Britain. We've seen this occur, as we said earlier, with many other intelligence services within many other countries. But – it does function as a criminal organization sometimes. 
And we know this. This isn't a theory. No. This isn't some tinfoil internet bloggery here. It turns out that in 2018, declassified documents showed that the government of the United Kingdom allows MI5's agents and informants to carry out crime within the UK uh, without consequence. They've been allowed to do this for at least 30 years. Whoa. Seriously, it's a it's a license to kill. It's a license to torture, uh, pillage. Did you just say a license to kill? Yes. Oh wait, <laughs> yeah, I did. I mean, come on, man. That's great. I, oh, I can't believe I didn't think of that. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. The, but really, <laughs> the bit we did was awesome. But the fact that they can just go. Murder people yeah. is is not cool. And, and and as it turns out, which was a bummer to me or to my kid self, they don't actually have a, a license they can flash before they kill someone, letting them know that it's legit. Right. It's more of an expression. Maybe we should just manufacture our own. Not to use, but just to have. Just on a T-shirt maybe? Well, like how would you feel if you stole someone's wallet and you were going through the wallet? And you found like three different fake forms of identification, right? All the same face, three different names, three different profiles. And then you saw like this mysterious license to kill. What would you do with that wallet? I would put it right back down. Wipe. I'd First, I'd wipe my prints from it. There you go. Place it right back down on the ground. Clever. <laughs> clever. All right. Well, I know what you guys are getting. For the holidays. <laughs> yeah. You'd also have to check local security cameras and any CCTV that's around to make sure right. to destroy those tapes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Okay. And you probably want to drop your phone too because that GPS oh. record would be there. Oh, God. Uh, you know what? We're, we might be taking this thought experiment a little too far yeah. <laughs> right now. Uh, if you do have a license to kill and you can tell us about it without killing us, we would love to hear your experiences. We will do our best to keep you anonymous just putting it out there. Well, I guess you're right, Noel. It's – as we'll see, they kind of did have not, – not a badge they could wave around, but they did have documented proof that the government at all levels that were aware of it approved of this. It was called a secret and concealed policy. This would allow the security service to authorize participation in murder, torture, sexual assault or other grave criminality if – just a few folks believed it was in the in the service of the greater good, in the public interest. Uh, that is so creepy and disgusting. And I wonder how many other intelligence organizations have an active policy like that, a secret and concealed policy. Okay, so this this was basically a criminal authorization. Just a, literally that. You can do crime. And it's okay. But it's like a for the greater good clause, right? Right. I mean, that's the implication here. Yeah, but (laughs) – yes, but this is something that has been around for 30 years and it was only first acknowledged in a British court when an alliance of human rights groups argued that it was uh, unlawful to have this kind of (laughs) policy. Like, maybe not. Let's not do this. Mm -hmm. And it was completely secret. Like, they were practicing omerta until 2012 – Prime Minister David Cameron wrote to Sir Mark Waller, the intelligence service commissioner at the time, asking him to uh, keep the policy under review, which is 
we've got a quote. It's very British in the way it's written, but we'll give it a shot. Uh, I'm going to do a British accent. Let's see. In the discharge of their function to protect national security, the security service has long-standing policy for their agent handlers to agree to agents participating in crime in circumstances where it is considered such involvement is necessary and proportionate in providing or maintaining access to intelligence that will allow the disruption of more serious crimes or threats to national security. Oh, wow, that was great. When First you say of it all, like that, it sounds nice. But it sounds like he's describing marzipan. It sounds like he's <laughs> reading like a Winnie the Pooh story mm-hmm. or something, you know? It's totally, um, it's a clause for uh, undercover agents, right? That's all, that's what that is. Well, no, but I mean, that part is. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's saying like if you have an informant yes. who is operating maybe in something like, uh, gun running or human trafficking circles, yeah. and you need to keep them embedded. Question and let them though, go in the in the states, yeah. you see it in movies. I'm, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. just wanting, wanting to see what you guys think about this. Whenever an undercover agent is offered drugs, they they go to whatever lengths they can to not actually do the drugs. If they're yeah. like, you know, you know, like prove you're not a cop, do the drugs or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, oops. Oops, I dropped the drugs. You know, isn't that a thing? You, uh, no, I'm, I'm wondering. Like, do you think we have a – it does seem like it's not – it's frowned upon for undercover cops to like get deep and start like doing drugs. You it probably, seems like there's a border. Yeah. There's, a, there's a boundary we'd, that we would prefer not to cross. They probably want to avoid it, but it comes, in, it comes into that idea of the greater good, right? Accomplishing yeah. the sting or the operation. So I am sure there are people who have maybe in the DEA or something – been forced to do cocaine or something like that, but I don't, I, I don't know if there's a strict, a, a strict bright line policy wise. I, I don't think there can be. Yeah, I think because all of it's circumstantial, right? Especially when you're dealing with this. If if this is full on national security for the past thirty years, I can't even imagine the some of the terrible things that some of these agents have had to do. Like you're saying, in the human trafficking fields, in drug fields, in murder, like in murder, uh, in order to then get a bigger fish essentially down the line. And you also have to wonder, OK, let's put ourselves in that hypothetical position. Let's say Paul, mission control decant, is a big time like narcos level Colombian drug cartel leader, right? I, I can see it. Okay. And we're, we're up and comers who are going to be lieutenants. And he's like, do this, uh, do this cocaine in front of me. It's cocaine, and uh, we would, we would look very suspicious if we just fumbled, <laughs> just dropped it. <laughs> because I, I don't know, I don't know a ton about um, about that drug, but I do know about the general trends of addiction and people who are into yeah. that kind of stuff don't just drop it. Yeah, in that case, I think the fumble move would be to accidentally drop it on one of the guys that you know is not an undercover agent so that it's, oh, well, we didn't waste it. It it just is all over that guy now. I don't know, man. (laughs) I think you have to do it if you're at that point. It's like that. It it can't be like that scene in that Woody Allen movie where he sneezes the cocaine off the the, the dish or whatever, (laughs) and it's just basically like a party foul. It's more like a you're going to get shot in the face foul. Yeah. But then if you're talking about the bigger operations where you're actually out in the field doing things other than drugs, the actual criminal acts, that's where it gets a little, um, I don't know, it gets murky for me. Right, right, right. Like if you are embedded as an enforcer and you're sent to beat the crap out of someone, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. I'm sure there have been in the past undercover agents who have to performatively beat the snot out of one another uh, just to make make sure they look like they're legit. 
so yes, the informant stuff that that's part of it, and that doesn't seem that far out. But when Cameron is writing this letter to Sir Mark Waller, he essentially says, "Look, we're not going to ask you to tell us whether." Like we don't want you to feel as if you have to report it to anybody if you get what I'm saying, anyone. And you don't have to worry about whether or not it's legal at all. That's just crazy, man. Is that one of those things where it sort of exists in like an extra legal gray Uh area? Yes. Right? Yeah. And most people in the government had no idea what was happening. You know what I mean? I think most people in parliament at that time would have said, you know, we should we should not give people these licenses for wanton destruction. Cameron, to be fair, I am going to try to be fair here, said he had considered making the letter public in, uh, in the interest of transparency but decided against it because he thought it might be damaging to the national interest, also known as his political career. Wow. That's what I think. I think he, I think he was saying damaging to the national interest, but he meant damaging to his political career. Yeah, kind of a typo, maybe a little. Well, I, flip and speech. I can see that. I can see that, Ben. I mean, I can see where you become prime minister, you get whiff of something like this, and as a citizen, it gives you pause just knowing that it's happening. Right, no matter where what your beliefs are in while you're holding that office, and it does seem like he kind of rode the fence there a little bit of. Should I, shouldn't I tell anybody about this? This is really effed up. But in the, in the, in the, uh, let's keep national security and public interest in order and let's just balance it out and say, let's just keep it quiet. Like, wasn't it the whole idea that he basically just, um, he said, he told this guy not to comment on the legality? That was the whole idea? Yeah. So it's the policy is under review doing air quotes here. I yeah. hope you can hear them. The policy is under review. However, uh, what that essentially means is provide cover for us mm-hmm. and don't like, okay, look, sometimes you got to you gotta break a few innocent eggs if you really want to cook a terrorism omelet. You know what I mean? Jeez. So that's, yeah, that's exactly what happens. So don't comment on the legality. Don't refer it to any prosecuting body. Don't refer it to law enforcement. Let's keep this between us. Let's let's have a greater good. So the argument was essentially that for most of history, most of modern British history, they have been following one of two paths as just a, a nation. There was the rule of law and then there were criminal acts, right? But they called this strategy the third direction. Great boy band. <laughs> right, right. Do you guys remember Glee? Do you remember their band, uh, One Direction? Wait, what was One it? One Direction was a, it was real, a real band. band. Yeah. What am I thinking of? Well, there was that U plus me equals us thing. Yeah. With oh, the fake new boy band. new direction. Maybe new direction. New know. direction. It's a pun. Ah, uh, new direction. I see. Yeah, I get it. Very, I know. Very, like, very body. Like Boy's Soul from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Right. But. They called this thing seriously the third direction. Nobody acknowledged it until this year in a British court when that Alliance of Human Rights groups that Matt mentioned earlier, um, Privacy International, who are the other ones? Yeah, those guys over at uh, PI. Then we've got Reprieve, the Committee on the Administration of Justice, and the Pat Finnegan Center. 
According to the legal team representing this alliance, the third direction policy is likely to have enabled the security service to conceal wide-ranging illegal activity and they brought this case before an investigatory powers tribunal. The trial included as a bonus a uh, the publication of a heavily redacted document, a guideline essentially for how to break the law and get away with it. This is how you do it. And like a lot of government documents, you can find copies of this published in a couple of different um, places in British media. But tons, like the entire paragraphs are blacked out. They're not going to admit this stuff, right? No. Because it's still the great boogeyman of national security. Exactly. And you know, the timing of the letter was also really strange here because just two weeks after this highly redacted document gets released, it's made public, Mr. Cameron, our buddy, admitted that there was this thing called state collusion in the 1989 murder of Belfast solicitor Patrick Finnegan. And um, state, state collusion? What does that mean? Uh, that means essentially the Cameron is arguing some faction of the intelligence apparatus or the state apparatus of the United Kingdom may have aided uh, aided in this guy's death or may have at the very least been criminally negligent in protecting him, right? There you That's go. That's the most fair way to say it. They get into some very, very, very dirty things when they were attempting to retain Northern Ireland, you know? Oh, Yeah. And we'll tell you more about the trial after a word from our sponsor. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...with zero qualifications... She had a Harvard plaque. ...tricks her way past a wall of lawyers and agents. She's got all of these Maseratis and Bentleys all in the driveway. Is it like a mansion? Yes, it's a mansion. ...that this queen of the con uses to scam some of the biggest names in professional sports out of untold fortunes. About six million. Approximately eleven million dollars. Nearly ten million dollars was all gone. Employing whatever means necessary to bleed her victims dry. She would probably have sex with one of her clients. Hide your money in your old rich man, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, season five, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling 
is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, was bought it? Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. She's breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. So according to Sir James Eady QC, that stands for Queen's Council. Those are the guys who have the, the wigs. The name for those wigs is Peruke. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> so Peruke Assault. <laughs> what was the one what was the one you did off here? Peruka's on fire. Peruke. Peruke. If you want to learn more about the history yeah. of the Peruke, you can check out me and Ben's other podcast, Ridiculous History, where we do a episode about what the heck's up with those crazy British lawyer wigs. <laughs> which awesome. is yeah, which is one of our first episodes. Be kind or be brutal. It's up to you. We just want you to know that's a great word. The internet's going to do what the internet's going to do, Ben. That's true. Yeah. That's true. So this guy, Sir James Eady, QC, is representing the intelligence agencies, the home office and the foreign office. And he told this investigatory powers tribunal that – Details of MI5's conduct had to be kept secret even in the modern day and could not be aired in open court. He argued that the claim should be restricted to investigating over a sensible time period, at most six years. Wow, six years to keep all your secrets. Right. Interesting. So what did the Alliance of Human Rights Organizations say to that? So in their argument, the claimants cite Finnegan's murder as an illustration of the considerable public importance of the issues raised. It also refers to allegations that Freddie Scapatici, great name, yeah, it's pretty good, was a former senior member of the IRA and a security uh, service agent working under the code name. Oh my God, I love this. 
steak knife, but, <laughs> but it's spelled S T A K E. That's a good DJ name right there, DJ Steak Knife. How about that, huh? Oh wow, that's great. Yeah, that's so. Scapatici, aka Steak Knife, uh, was. We have to say allegedly still, but yeah. was involved in kidnap, torture, and murder while working as an agent employed by MI5. So in a roundabout way, the uni- the government of the United Kingdom was paying this guy to kidnap, torture, and murder people. For the greater good. For, for the greater good, right. MI5 has refused to answer the claimant's questions about the scope of this third direction policy, including whether it could, in principle, authorize murder, torture, inhumane and degrading treatment, uh, sexual assault, kidnapping or false imprisonment. The security services lawyers also said to answer such questions would reveal the facts of conduct that they wish to keep secret. So it's kind of like a, a trust us. We're doing the right thing. We can't tell you what we're doing. We can't tell you why other than that. Not a very convincing argument. No, not at all. And we also have other examples of some strange things that ended up coming to light uh, or at least things that maybe never wanted to see the light of day. There were some papers released by the Irish state that showed um, that there was this loyalist paramilitary group or at least members of one of these groups, specifically the Ulster Volunteer Force. They're a paramilitary group out of Northern Ireland. They claimed that MI5 asked them to assassinate the then uh, Prime Minister of Ireland, Charles Hahi, in 1985. And um, we went to this BBC source to learn a little bit more about this. But it's very – I don't know. It's very strange because it was a a letter just kind of – your standard letter sent to somebody like a correspondence and it just happened to include a couple documents and um, a couple literally guys who just said, hey, by the way, MI5 asked us to kill you one time. We didn't do it. Yeah. But, but you know, you should know. It's crazy. It was sent two years after the alleged, uh, I guess, assassination or the hit was put on him, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, it contained a long long list of collusion allegations against uh, the British intelligence service, so or various services that the British intelligence has. Um, this guy, it was addressed to Mr. Hahi and it read, in 1985, we were approached by an MI5 officer. He asked us to execute you. And it said that these this paramilitary group had been supplied with, quote, details that would have compromised this guy's personal security, including aerial photographs of his family home, his cars, and his private yacht. So for a, uh, an imperfect comparison, it's similar to, say, the CIA um, taking over Newfoundland and the people of Newfoundland wanting to make a united Canada. And so the CIA contacts someone in Canada and says, kill whomever is in charge of uh, this unity group in Newfoundland or kill the kill the prime minister of Canada so we can keep our part. Yeah, and I guess they didn't imagine that the people who were uh, <laughs> not necessarily the friends of the British intelligence service would, they wouldn't just say, oh, yeah, OK, sure, boss. Well, maybe they just said, you know, killing prime ministers a step too far. I guess that's what I'm saying. Yeah, like they didn't expect that to occur. Mm-hmm. That seems very strange to me. 
In 2010, Benyam Mohammed al-Habashi went to court to hold MI5 accountable for collusion in his torture at the hands of Uncle Sam. And then there's the example of uh, Shakir Amir, who said MI5 watched him being tortured in 2001. That was really brutal, too. Yeah. The guy, he was um, in Guantanamo Bay, right? And he he said like several times British officers would be in the room while he's being beaten, just brutally beaten, his head slammed against the wall. Yeah. yeah. Pretty, pretty crazy stuff. It's truly disturbing because now with all this new information, this um, admission on the part of the British government – uh, that that these sorts of things occur, many of those previous allegations of criminal activity on the part of MI5 that were once dismissed as out-and-out conspiracy theories seem increasingly maybe not plausible, may, well, maybe not probable, but certainly less impossible. They've been implicated in the murder of anti-nuclear activist Hilda Merle. They've been accused of creating a far-right neo-Nazi group, Combat 18. Their profile peaked in February 15th, 1995, when they orchestrated a riot in Dublin that led to a cancellation of a football match between England and Ireland. One theory suggests that British intelligence wanted to create a magnet for the most extreme parts of these political parties, one member who was convicted of murder in 1998, a guy named Charlie Sargent, has been accused of being an MI5 informant with some pretty solid evidence. And then we did the death of Commander Buster Crab in a previous episode. So yeah. Buster Crab. Mm-hmm. Where he never surfaced, and it seems that maybe someone on the inside was responsible. Weren't there frogmen involved in that story? Yes. Yeah. What about crab men? They never made it to crab. Mainly because the difficulty of making forward-backward motion. That's hard. Yeah. Scuttling. Scuttling. So, uh, Bat, you mentioned uh, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi earlier as well, right? Oh, yeah. And in 96, there was a bomb that was placed under a car that was, I guess, thought to be the vehicle that Gaddafi was going to be traveling in in his motorcade. But, uh, well, it, it he wasn't in that vehicle. The car did explode. The bomb did explode. And several bodyguards were killed. There was uh, an ensuing gun battle that killed sev- several people. And there were even um, – there were would-be assassins, you know, the people that planted the bomb and everything. They had links to al-Qaeda. And it's thought that maybe, maybe MI5 had a little bit of a hand in this. Right. The head of the Libyan desk for MI5 at the time was a guy named David Shaler and a 19 19- – 97, he left the service, leaked this information, these accusations, these allegations to the press. He was forced to flee to France. And in 1998, he claimed that the plot to kill Gaddafi had been funded by MI6. Wow. Cooperation with MI5. There's, you know, taking out a head, a leader like that of a country is no small deal. Well, and there's compelling, it's not compelling evidence. There's proof that Ultimately, the French government was behind the assassination of Gaddafi to preserve financial uh, hegemony because they wanted – you know, Gaddafi did many, many terrible things. But the thing France was most frightened of him doing was to create a a continental African currency, a dinar. Yep. So mess with the money. Right? That's what happens. Money in the oil. (laughs) The new series starring Matt Frederick. There's always money in the banana stand. So what does this all mean? This is is pretty strange because it's rare for this kind of information to come out in such a blatant way. 
Yeah. Break the law for the greater good. Most intelligence agencies, I would say, practice that, right? The problem is the goalpost of that defines greater good is always moving. Who's good? Right. Greater for whom? Exactly. Exactly. And at this point, many of us listening to the show today will have a hard time being surprised. Some of us might even support this policy. You know what I mean? There are people who say that torture is a terrible thing, but ultimately it saves lives. We have an episode on why that is not true. We as do. Well. Yeah. Yeah. But but there are points to be made that if you – it's not an easy task to stop the, you know, in, the, in your worldview, the worst people in the world from doing the worst things. It's not an easy task to prevent that from happening. And you do have to – perhaps do some bad things. It's just, I think in this case, it's that gray area of how bad is too bad for the, uh, a thing for the good guys to do to prevent the bad guys. Well, it's that idea that to like counter the bad guys, you got to stoop to their level on some, you got to play by their rules. Otherwise you're going to get stepped all over. Right. In in theory. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's a good point. Did I tell you guys I rewatched true detective recently? Season two, season one. Well, thank God. Yeah. No, I, I have a friend that really says revisit season two, give it another chance. I yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that before. But I didn't take a break. Season one was just so great. There's oh. a quote that's not a spoiler, but this this conversation reminds me of it. Um, the two main characters, Marty and Rust, are having a, a philosophical discussion about the nature of good and evil. And at some point in the conversation, Marty says, "Marty asks if if they're good people." And Russ says, no, we're bad, but they need bad men like us to keep the others from the door. Yeah. And that, ma- that uh, bear from the beginning of the show. Remember? Yeah, exactly. Or Jack Nicholson, right? Not, not, as a, uh, not as a character, just him. He's, well, he's keep, I don't know. I'm he's, not, a, he's a creepy looking guy. I, I don't know. Him. I wouldn't I, want him to knock him. I, yeah, I don't know him well enough to, to remark on his door policy. I guess, <laughs> I guess the big question is, do we have to have the bad guys inside the door keeping the other bad guys from the door? Why can't we just build a giant wall and keep everybody out? <laughs> That's very, very, very topical. Topical question Ooh, you got there. Hot Matt. takes. So hot takes kidding. with I'm Matt. Totally kidding. I'm totally Well, totally it's a kidding. good question though because should MI5 allow its agents and informants to break the law? Does it really – does it really – uh, become a necessary evil on the way to achieving a greater good, right? And if so, for whom? What laws do they break? How do we measure the success or the efficiency of something like this if it's conducted entirely in secret? What sort of oversight should the public and or government agencies have on this process? Because right now, the answer is none. They have none. Yeah. They have a letter from 2012 that's like, don't send this to anybody. Basically, David Cameron sent a no-snitching letter. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what happened. And that's where we are today. No snitching, boys and girls. <laughs> Snitches end up in stitches. Yeah. Well, tell us what you think. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter and let us know, are these things necessary evils? Is uh, allowing the collapse of the rule of law in one scenario really necessary to allow the enforcement of rule of law in another situation, right? That's ultimately yeah, the question. It really is. Um, and by the way, I was just going to bring this up before we ended. At the Tenderfoot holiday party thing that we were at, mm-hmm. the three of us, I ran into a gentleman. Uh, 
Paul Deccan was there too. But we ran into a gentleman who truly, truly believes and had a long discussion with me about it that the British government still controls the United States. I overheard that and I didn't want to jump in. He truly believed it. Oh, I should have talked to him. I know. Well, I kind of – I didn't want to go any deeper than we already had in the conversation because it – it's one of those that doesn't really go anywhere after you hit a certain wall. It's like, yeah, well, you can't prove anything, but that's an interesting did you, idea. Did you tell him we did an episode on it? I did. Did you tell him that he can contact us via a, a telephone call? We're just a phone call away? I did. I said call one eight three three stdwytk Brought the STD back for this one because it's not yeah. about awful things like the last one. <laughs> oh, uh, and I also, I also want to just – in the interest of full transparency, I'm not at death's door, but I am in. I am darn sure on like the sub basement of sickness right now, so that's why so my voice sounds uh, a little bad. If you heard any any mucusy noises, sorry, folks, that was me. Should be hale and hearty later. Are no. you down with the sickness, Ben? Oh, Ooh, ah. I'm, I'm always I'm always up to something. It's just know. extra deep. I like it. I know it's nice and gravelly. Oh, uh, thanks, guys. Paul uh, Paul will surely snip out all the snot sounds <laughs> thanks paul uh so yeah let us let us know what you think and check in with your fellow listeners we'd like to take this debate to the internet and we mentioned it earlier in the show but you can find us at our facebook site here's where it gets crazy if you love all that but you don't want to do any of it whatever your reasons may be we have some good news for you you can write to us directly we are conspiracy at howstuffworks.com As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts, the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. 
I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.